So this two-week series on need and plenty, the places that we are in our lives, the highs and the lows, the wants and the abundance. And contentment is really the key to this whole thing. Because Paul said last week in Philippians 4, he said, the whole idea of being content with my life is not being tied to the circumstances that I was in. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And so Paul, sitting in prison, writes this letter to the Philippians and says, it doesn't matter to me what I have or what I don't have. I've known need and I've known plenty. But I want you to know that I am content because I have all the things that I need here in this world. Because I have Christ. So last week we talked about contentment. And this week we're going to talk about how to be rich which is always a great topic that will get people to gather in hotel ballrooms and will get you to um, sell all of the things that you have so that you can do this one quick thing that will get you rich. Um, You might sell something on the side. You might have a side hustle. Anything that will help you to get more money. Being sufficient is the word here in contentment. Self-sufficiency. The idea that we don't need anything out of the self, but that we are independent of our circumstances. This is what we talked about last week. But Paul was sitting in prison and he was still happy because his circumstances did not dictate his happiness. He was content because his contentment was not about where he was or what he had. But Paul gives this to Timothy. He says this in Timothy's hour. And there must have been people in Timothy's church that had this problem of wealth. That were looking at what they wanted from Christ. And they were saying, you know what? I can get all I need from my money. I can get everything that I need if I go after wealth. If I pursue wealth. If I go after the bigger things in life. If I can take care of myself and build up all of these things then I will be a person that has no needs. I will be a happy person. I will be content. But there's a problem in that thinking in this church. And what Paul is saying is that everything that you covet, everything that you desire, all these riches that you're going after, the love of money, that has no permanence in this life. Everything goes away. And so when we gather at the table in Thanksgiving... And we start to say, here are the things that I love. None of that stuff has permanence. Here are the things that I'm thankful for. None of that stuff lasts. None of that stuff is around for eternity. And so when we look at our blessings, when we count the things that are worth counting, Paul says, don't worry about those things. Those are not the things that make you rich. Those things have no permanence. The basic necessities of life are food and clothes. And Paul makes reference to that. In verse 8, he says, We have brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And this is not a future prediction. If you you like food and clothing, you're going to be content with that. This is a must. This is an imperative. This is... If you 
are satisfied with these things, it's not a question of whether you are or not. Paul says you must be content with these things. Because what happens if they're not? What happens if the people in Timothy's church are not happy with them? What becomes of their life if they desire things beyond the basic necessities? And Paul answers this in verse 9. He says, those that want to get rich, people that want money, people that have a priority of these things in life, they fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that he has seen plunge people into ruin and destruction. And the word plunge there in Greek is actually the word for drown. It means being tossed into the sea over your head. It means that all of a sudden... You can't swim anymore. The picture that Paul is painting is not one of gradual increase. He's not painting a picture of, I, didn't, I, I saw it coming, it built slowly, and then all of a sudden it was here. This is Paul showing that people are thrown overboard. That they go out and beyond the places where they can be satisfied. And they're in over their head, and it's not a gradual consistent thing it's an all of a sudden thing it's i'm thrown over the side of the boat and can't swim there are disastrous results on these people who are placing a priority on money and we need to be careful about what paul is talking about here because paul is not talking about the person who is rich paul is not talking about the wealth of people he's talking about people who want to be rich, who desire more than they have, who desire more than the things that they've fixed their eyes on. To covet what doesn't belong to us, what is not ours to have. This is not a condemnation of people with possessions. He's saying there is a lot of redemption. There's a lot of things that can come from riches. But what you think of being rich is not actually being rich. What you think of is what you desire because you're putting your hope into something that's not going to last. You're putting your hope into something that will always fail you. He's not saying having possessions is inherently wrong. His is a warning for those who want to be rich, for those who have fixed their desires or made it their overriding motive to, to gain and possess and to have more and more. And it's never enough. And richness is not found in those things. He says, those who desire to be rich are going to be made fools. They become ensnared in their temptation. And in fact, he says it causes them to wander away from what the gospel intends to teach. And he gives this great description He says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He's saying, it leaves them feeling empty, sidled with the thorns of remorse and disillusionment, which now lacerates them. Their lives come up empty. They think that what will cause them great happiness, what will cause them to be great people, what will help fill that void in their lives that they're searching for is riches. But it ends up 
filling them with empty remorse, with feelings of regret and spitefulness and bitterness because that is their reward. They have what they have. They got what they wanted. And yet they are so far away. Psalm 62.10 says, If wealth should flow in, do not set your heart on it. The Bible does not deny some people will become rich. The Bible does not deny owning possessions. The Bible does not deny having a good life. What the Bible denies is saying, if you set your heart on those things, there will be disastrous results. And I think in our own lives, this is something that causes a lot of stress. It causes a lot of pain for people because we have that underlying desire of what else do I need? Is this the one thing that satisfies me? Is this the one thing that's going to cause my heart to be happy? The average person in America is wealthier than about 90% of the rest of the world. If you make $250 a month, you're wealthier than half of the world. If you have $20 in your bank account now, you are richer than a quarter of the people on this planet. See, the problem is not wealth. The problem is not wanting to be rich. The problem is our own perspective on the world. See, we are rich. We are rich people. And at times we feel like we struggle because we can't get through the day. We feel like we're, we're going to have these places that God's going to take us where we're going to have a need. We're going to have a want that needs to be filled. And yet at any given moment in our lives, we're making more money than 90% of the people on the planet. In fact, do you know what the median salary is for a person on this planet? $2,800 a year. That's the middle. That's the average for the globe. Desiring riches lead to foolishness because we already have everything we could possibly want. And then we desire more and more and more. And then we look at countries and we think, man, how can they be so happy? It's because they don't have. They understand what it's like to not have. And so the blessings that they are given, the things that they do get, makes their hearts gladdened that much more. And so we complain this morning about slow Wi-Fi or microphones that don't work. And yet there are places in this world that struggle to even find chairs to sit in. They can't turn the lights on. That don't have fancy computers or projectors. Yet the gospel still lives. Christ still lives in the hearts of those believers. And as we gather every Sunday across the globe, the message of Christ comes through in spite of needs. <laughs> and even, here's the great part of that. The message of Christ comes through in spite of our riches here in the West. That the grace of God and the gospel of 
Christ and the truth of who he is still comes through despite flashy lights and smoke machines and huge productions and they can go on and on and on, slides in the kids' room, whatever it might be. The word of God, the gospel of Christ, the good news of his sacrifice comes through in spite of all the things that we think we might need to cast it. And that's what it means to drive for something beyond ourselves. To desire riches is not just to desire money, but it's to desire a larger audience. It's to desire a bigger building. It's to desire better equipment, new equipment that doesn't fail. There's a story in John 5. Now, there's a first century idea that if you had wealth and means that you were a leader, that you were someone powerful. And so a lot of times the elders in a church or those people in government, those are the people with money, people that could afford that. And so in John 5, we have a story of the disciples and Jesus coming upon a man who had been blind from birth. And there's this pervasive idea that if you were poor, if you were with need, if you had no home, if you were blind, then you were not loved by God. You had been abandoned by God. And so the disciples in John 5 come across this blind man. They, they walk up to him and they say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's natural for us to think that God must have abandoned us. It's natural for us to think that God must not love us, that God's blessings are limited, that he can only give certain people some good and we get bad. But God is here to tell you that it does not matter who sinned in your life or the life of your parents. People will be born blind or deaf or people will be born into great riches and we do not have a say in that. Our desire for contentment, our desire for who we are in Christ, that is where we need to be. In fact, we can take that a step further by trusting in the things that we should not be trusting and by accumulating the things that won't bring us the wealth that God talks about. A little later in John 9, this is the story of the pool at Bethesda, Jesus encounters a lame man, and he had been lame for 38 years. It's not known whether he was born like this or whether there was an injury that caused him to be lame. But they came to the pool at Bethesda because those that gathered believed that the pool had special healing powers. They believed that when the water was stirred, when it was moved around, that there were angels treading in the water. That they were, there was something in that water. And so the first one to enter the pool, they would be healed of everything that was wrong with them. It sounds silly to us. But yet we so often go to the pool to heal what ails us. Jesus says, do you wish to be well? He says, 
That's a funny question because I'm here at the pool for 38 years and I'm waiting to step in the pool, but I have no one to lift me in. And every time I try and get there, someone goes in before me. That's not the question Jesus asked, though. Jesus asked, do you wish to be well? Because the pool will not do it. Only I can do it. So get up, grab your pallet, and walk. And so often, for 38 years sometimes, for our lives, we gather at a pool where we hear, this is what's going to help me. This is what's going to change me. This is what's going to grant me happiness and richness. And yet Jesus comes along and says, do you think this is going to get you well? Do you think this is what you need to heal your heart? Do you think this is what you need to be able to see again? Jesus meets us there at the pool. Do you want to be well? This is what it's like to chase after riches that we think that they will protect us. They think it will save us. We think that it's the answer to everything that we've been seeking. But Paul is warning mostly about what we are placing our hope in. And so Paul writes in these last verses in 17, 18, and 19 that there is hope beyond riches. He's like, I want you to tell people that are gathering their wealth. I want you to tell them to use it for something good. I want you to command them that are rich in this present world not to be proud. Don't boast about your wealth. Don't put your hope in this uncertain thing, but put your hope instead in God. This is the mistake that we have in that we think that we have a high cost of living, but really it's just a cost of high living. That if everything were to come back to earth, if everything were to be wiped away, if everything were to be lost in just a moment, we wouldn't have a problem with the high cost of living anymore. Because when you have nothing, there is no high living. Paul says the only way to be rich is to be rich in good works. The only way to use your riches for good is to continue to do good works, to do good deeds. Godliness or even religion is great, but it's not because it brings material riches. What it offers to the believer is the promise of life here and now and the life to come. The essential posture of this is that a believer should have a contented spirit to be satisfied with the gifts God has already given. And this is what Paul says to those who are rich. He says, they must be commanded to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. This is how you become rich. This is how you live well. This is how wealth is determined in the Bible. Whether we're doing good deeds for those around us, whether we're practicing generosity, whether we're just silly with giving and giving and giving of our lives. There are temptations to which rich people are exposed. 
to be arrogant, to be proud, to put hope in wealth. And so he says, look at your wealth in a different way. Do something else with your money. Do something else with your riches. Be rich in good works instead. The Greek word for uncertainty is actually untrustworthiness. And so when Paul says they're putting their hope in something that's uncertain, he's actually saying you're putting your hope in something that is untrustworthy. And the only thing that can be trustworthy is generosity. The only thing that can be trustworthy is the gift that has already come from God. And this is what you will do if you are doing good works. This is what you will do if you are willing to share with people. You will lay up for yourselves treasure as a firm foundation. And I love this line. You will take hold of the life that is truly life. How do we be How do we become rich? Lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, a firm foundation. Because if we hoard this wealth that we have, if we hold it back, if we refuse to do things with it, that is our foundation. The untrustworthiness of something that could be gone in the blink of an eye. Paul says there are two ways to be counted as rich. Doing a wealth of good deeds and gladly sharing others. Gladly sharing with others. And so this causes in our lives a kind of moment, a kind of decision, a kind of choice. That we can do good works, but also Paul says that we can provide for ourselves to simultaneously store up any good foundation for the future. And how do we do that? What does that look like in practice? Well, it gets really kind of dirty. It gets kind of messy. Because when we have to share of ourselves, when we have to give our good works away, when we have to not hoard wealth, it gets us in a position where we share with other people. And it gets us in this incredible notion that Paul gives of Personal involvement with other people. What a concept that might be. What a concept that when the church steps out on its own, it's getting personally involved with the people in its community. And when we step out and say, I'm going to serve and I'm going to give, and I'm going to sacrifice and I'm going to give all of this stuff away, it puts us in a position to be personally involved with the people around us. And what do we see the picture of Jesus doing Grabbing people and going off into closed off corners and saying, don't look at them. Don't talk to them. If you want true life, just come to me and don't do anything else. Jesus met the lame man where he was. Jesus met the blind man where he was. He met the woman at the well where she was. Jesus met Nicodemus where he was. Jesus got personally involved in lives around him. Because he said, what good is this gift that God has given if I cannot share it with others? It's about investing in things that have permanence. 
Sharing what we have includes sharing ourselves in everything that we do. This is how we are rich, by getting personally involved in the lives and the needs of people around us. Ministry is about two things, names and needs. Do you know who they are and do you know what they want? This is how we become rich. Not by accumulating wealth and placing our hope in that, but placing our hope in Christ. By placing our hope in God, by remembering the things that have already come before us. If wealth should flow in, do not set your heart on it. Set your heart on God, who is the only thing that will last. This is the true, firm foundation And when we don't have this uncertainty, when we aren't being swayed by the markets and by the possessions that we have and the things that we're accumulating, there is no more uncertainty. There is no more unrest. And last week I said that the opposite of contentment was not discontentment, but unrest. And that when we have peace, we are content. Peace comes from God. Peace comes from knowing that we can put hope in God and he will never fail. Paul says, don't do these things with riches. Don't exchange what God has done for the work that riches, that you think riches will give you. And Jesus says it even in a better way in the book of Matthew. He says this, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. See, he's saying, have peace with your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't there more to life than food and more to the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you more valuable than they are? And which of you, by worrying, can add even one hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothing? Think about how the flowers of the fields grow. They do not work or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was clothed like one of these. And if this is how God clothes the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow is tossed into the fire to heat the oven, won't he clothe you even more, you people of little faith? So then don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the unconverted pursue these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But above all, pursue his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So then do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. In its proper context, this is not a verse. This is not teaching about worry. This is not teaching about anxiety. This is teaching about peace. This is teaching about contentment. This is teaching about God has brought you to this place And remember that you are still here. You are alive. You have been well fed.